you're opening your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, I just want to uh, remind us why we are going through this study of all 66 books of the Bible, doing an overview of each and every book. The 66 books of the Bible are not a collection of random, disjointed, or unconnected stories. All the books of the Bible tell one story. They reveal God's one eternal plan and His purpose for our world. And I want to ask you a question this morning. How in the world could 40 different authors, at least 40 different authors, who lived across a span of two millennia from three different continents who were shepherds, kings, slaves, priests, generals, carpenters, farmers, prophets, fishermen, politicians, assassins, and government agents who spoke three different languages. How could they all come together across that period of time, those different cultures, and write one single specific story? It's because it's a, a supernatural book. It was miraculously written. It has been miraculously preserved for us to have in our hands this morning. The Holy Spirit inspired human authors to tell one cohesive story. And that matters. If you don't understand that about the Bible, you miss so much about why the Bible was written. It's not random disjointed stories. It's one story and only God could tell this story. All scripture was breathed out by God. And that matters to our life. It matters to our faith. And the only way this book is possible is if God wrote it. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. That's the primary reason the Bible was written, was for God to reveal himself to his creation. And he also reveals his purposes throughout history. Jesus taught that scripture all pointed to him. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is the scriptures that bear witness of me. Scripture was written to point us to Jesus. Jesus also told the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus, the resurrected Savior, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I pray that the Holy Spirit uses our study this morning in Ecclesiastes to open our minds to understand the scriptures as a whole, but also to understand Jesus Christ better this morning. The Old Testament books are important because they tell God's story. They tell us who we are. They tell us why we exist, what is wrong, and they prepare the way for God's Messiah. That is why the Bible was written. And if we do not know the books of the Old Testament, we miss out on wisdom that God intended for us to have and to understand. We cheat ourselves if we neglect these precious gifts from God. And if we're honest as believers, the books we are least familiar with are the Old Testament books. And every single one of them was given to us as a gift. John MacArthur said he is a Christian because of the Old Testament. Because without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make any sense. If you don't understand our creator and the fall of man, then talk of a savior and a rescue and a deliverer and a Messiah. It makes zero sense if you don't understand who God is, how holy he is, and how greatly we've offended him through our sin. You've got to understand the Old Testament. And just the privilege of being able to see God's plan unfold book after book chapter after chapter leading up to the point where Jesus steps on the scene and John the Baptist points to him and says behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world it is a beautiful thing to understand the Old Testament and how it connects to the New Testament but before we can discover the deep treasures hidden within these books of the Old Testament we must understand their context 
That is why we're doing this study. We're doing an overview of each of the books of the Bible, praying that this will whet our appetites to dig deeper into God's Word. And another reason we're doing this is because I believe one of the greatest problems in the church today is biblical illiteracy. As Christians, we don't know God's Word like the church used to know God's Word. We don't memorize God's Word like the church used to memorize God's Word. And if we are ever going to have any hope of living out God's Word before a world that is lost and dying, we're going to have to know God's Word. So it starts with understanding the context. And just like a friend told us at uh, lunch or dinner this week, they were talking about how they had heard a story on PBS of all places of this World War II hero that not very many people know. And as they listened to this story, it began to spark an interest in them for World War II. So they started reading books, listening to different things, diving in, and it took them on this entire journey of discovering the story of what happened in World War II. And that's how these scriptures should impact our lives. By the way, I don't know if anyone in here has seen The Darkest Hour, but that's one of my favorite World War II movies, and uh, I thought I should just mention that this morning. It's one of my favorites right now. So today, we are in, that's a little inside joke, I'm sorry guys. Today we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. So, to set the context, Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, and he reminds us that God has given each one of us a precious gift that many times we take for granted, and many times we treat it like it is worthless, and that precious gift is the gift of life. Our life is precious. Every single human life is precious. The people that disagree with you politically, that you argue with, that you fight with, that post things online that frustrate you to no end, whichever side of the spectrum you're on, they are made in God's image and they are precious and their life is precious. Every single atheist that disagrees with God's word, every single false idol worshiper, false religious worshiper that is in this world, their life is precious and their life matters to God and it should matter to us. Every single baby, born or unborn, their life is precious and God has given us this precious gift of life and the author of this book is going to challenge us to build our life on the right foundation. Not to take it for granted, but to examine our life and see if we are building on the right foundation. And he's gonna tell us what that right foundation is. Pastor and author Wayne Cordero tells a story of moving to Hawaii to pastor a church. Yes, he's that guy. He's that guy that gets to move to Hawaii to pastor a church. We all pray for guys like that, suffering for Jesus on the beach. But as he left his family and friends, some of us here can relate to that, he felt alone on this island and he was really struggling to connect with the people to whom he was called to minister. Feeling his inadequacy, he prayed that God would send him a mentor. He felt his great need. And as he prayed for God to send him this mentor, God answered the prayer in an incredibly unlikely way. He was hiking through the villages and the different locations on the island and he came across this small building, knocked on the door, and it was a little library. And he went in, introduced himself as a pastor at this local congregation, and the librarian told him about this book, took him back to the back shelf, unwrapped this book that had been wrapped, covered, very old book, and said, I think you should read this. And as he began reading this book, he discovered it was written by a pastor who had ministered on the same island about 100 years earlier. And even though this pastor had passed away, years before Pastor Cordero arrived, he found a great mentor in this book. And he learned many things about the people and their culture, including how God had sent a great revival to this island through this pastor's ministry. And after this experience of being mentored by someone who was already in heaven, he began to look at the Bible in an entirely different way. 
he discovered that God had many of his greatest followers record their stories in the pages of Scripture. And he discovered that he, as well as you and I this morning, have mentors in the pages of Scripture. And we have the opportunity to sit at the feet of Moses, Joshua, Daniel, Samuel, Solomon, and to be mentored by them across the centuries through God's Word. And today, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have the privilege of being mentored by King Solomon. He was a man of many talents, and he carried many titles. He was a prince. He became the king. He was the wisest man who had ever lived. It was supernaturally given to him by God. He was a judge. He was a preacher. And as we're going to see today, Solomon was a scientist. Solomon set out to conduct a grand experiment to answer the greatest questions of life. It's been said that life's greatest questions can be boiled down to four basic essential questions that we need to ask. The first question is origins. Where did I come from? The second one is the question of meaning. Why am I here? The third is morality. What should I believe? Or what determines right and wrong? And the fourth is destiny. Where am I going when I die? And Solomon answers all of these questions in this book. And we share that in common with Solomon, even, even if you haven't thought about it in that way. Our worldview is determined by how we answer these questions. Everyone has a worldview, a lens through which they view reality. And we've all asked these questions and we've all answered these questions, even if we don't realize it, because these questions drive everything else we do. Ethan taught at summer camp, I believe it was two weeks ago, that our beliefs dictate our behavior. What you believe about life, your worldview, determines how you live your life. So what Solomon is talking about to us this morning is incredibly important. And Solomon's interested in this as he writes the words that we find in chapters 1, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And I want to read these to you this morning. Solomon says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord for his people this morning. And as we look to do an overview of this entire book, I read this section in chapter 1 because it really sets the tone, and if you didn't notice, it's not a real positive tone. It's not a real optimistic tone. It's not a very uplifting tone, but it's one that we need to deal with this morning. Because as I said, Solomon set out to conduct a divine experiment. And I want you to know that God allowed Solomon to undertake this experiment. He allowed him to become the prodigal son. Solomon wandered from God, his father. He left God's presence to search out happiness in this world. He was sinning, but God allowed him to do this to teach future generations incredible lessons. Now Solomon paid a high price for his disobedience and for his wandering. And his future generations had to pay the consequences for his disobedience. But God has used his life experience to teach us many lessons. And the reason is that God cares about our lives. He created us in his image. And we have an intrinsic need 
for meaning and for purpose. That's why we do the things we do. It's built into our DNA. God cares about our joy. He cares about our sorrow. He cares about our daily experiences. He wants to bless us. He tells us that throughout Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. He desires to bless us. That doesn't mean we won't have suffering. It doesn't mean we won't experience difficulty in this earth. It just means that He wants to bless us with temporary blessings and eternal blessings. And He promises to do that for those who love Him and who obey His commandments. Now, we just celebrated July 4th last week. And Americans of all people should understand the idea of an experiment. America itself is an experiment. We set out to understand what it could mean to pursue freedom, life, and liberty in the pursuit of happiness. The idea of the American experiment was captured in the Declaration of Independence, which is one of the most revolutionary documents ever written, and that is what drove our national founders to seek this independence. So what was the big idea behind the United States? It's captured in the first sentence of, the par of paragraph two in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Americans are professional scientists. We explore every possible avenue to finding happiness, meaning, and fulfillment. The problem is that just like Solomon, we look for it in all the wrong places. We think that things can satisfy something that only God can satisfy. We put things over God and they become idols in our life. Now when these things... Even many of these pursuits that Solomon set out after, wisdom, pleasure, many of these things work. Many of these things aren't bad. They're gifts of God, but when we exalt them over God, they become idols in our lives. So as Americans, I think we understand, as we look in all the wrong places like Solomon did, that Solomon not only set out to conduct this divine experiment, but Solomon made a mortal mistake. And the mistake that Solomon made is that he wanted to find meaning in life apart from God. The word mortal is the opposite of the word divine. God is immortal. God is divine. We are mortal beings. And he says something that is, I believe, the key phrase in this book, if you don't understand this phrase, you're not going to understand this book. It's just going to sound like a bunch of whining. It's going to sound like a, a pessimistic person. Just got someone handed him a pen and some blank pages and said, here, just vent to your therapist. And that's all it seems like until you understand this phrase. The phrase happens repeatedly in this book, and it's the phrase under the sun or under heaven. And what he means by this phrase is that he sought for happiness, joy, peace, fulfillment, all these different things under the sun, apart from God. He focused on this world, on this earth, and left God out of the picture for a certain time period in his life. And we've all done this, and we all struggle with this day by day. We're tempted to go back into this lifestyle where we seek what only God can give apart from God. We were created by God. We were created in His image to know Him and to bring Him glory. And there is zero meaning in life apart from Him. And Solomon reminds us of this truth. So without being able to go through every chapter of this book, I'm going to go to 1 John chapter 2 and give you a preview of all the things that Solomon sought after. And I promise you, they're the same things that we seek after, that you seek after when you struggle in your life to disobey God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, 
but is from the world, and the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He says all that is in the world, everything, these are all the tools that Satan has at his disposal. The desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every single sin you've committed, every single sin you struggle with, falls into one of these categories. It's the same three sins that we see in the Garden of Eden. When Satan tempts Eve and he says, did God really say? And she looked and she saw that the tree was desired to make her wise. And it was good to eat. And she took and gave to her husband. And they both gave in to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. You can be like God. You don't need him to be your God. You can decide for yourself what is right and wrong. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents. Knowing for yourself what's good and what's evil. Defining for yourself what's right and what's wrong. The reason God forbade them to take of that tree was because that was God's role in his creation. He determined right and wrong. He determined what was sin and what was good and what was evil. And today in our world, we're still trying to redefine good and evil. We're taking it into our own hands and God has given us his word. And the mistake that we make is the same mistake Solomon made when we pursue the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because those things are passing away. Solomon set out to explore everything the world has to offer apart from God in order to find the answer to life's greatest questions. The questions of existence, the questions of meaning, the questions of morality, the question of destiny. He's going to explore these three categories in a way that no human being has ever explored them before. He explored his depravity in a way that you and I have never had the opportunity to. And we can point fingers at Solomon this morning, but imagine if God blesses you with more wealth than any single human has ever had in their lives, and you had the opportunity to do anything, go anywhere, meet anybody, accomplish any task, can you imagine the temptation that was presented to Solomon when nothing was put up in his way as a barrier to pursue and experience all this life has to offer? And Solomon tells us over and over and over again in this book, all it brought him was meaninglessness, emptiness, futility, depression. Imagine having everything in the world and feeling like nothing matters. We can see this in our celebrities. We can see this in our superstars, in our athletes. You would think they would be the happiest people on the planet. They're famous. They're wealthy. They can have anything they want. And yet they're so empty apart from Jesus Christ. So the things that Solomon sets out to pursue are pleasure, wisdom, work, career, time, Evil, injustice, wealth, honor, folly, and life and death. That just about covers everything, right? Those are the things he dove into and immersed himself in and pursued with every drop of energy that he has. And you have to study the entire book to understand all these categories and how Solomon, in a scientific way, literally using the scientific method to walk through exploration of all these different categories of life. You have to read the entire book, but I can give you the result of what Solomon found out. He's not very good at keeping it a surprise. The entire book is in a shadow. It has the shadow of this depression and this meaninglessness and emptiness and futility over the entire book, every single page of the book. And when we look at this, we see the sad result, the result of his search, the result of his experiment. He says it is a pursuit of misery. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It is a pursuit of misery. He says it's vanity. It's empty. It's futile. He says everything that is done under the sun he says, I've seen it, and behold, it is all vanity. It is all a striving after the wind. He says it's broken. 
The curse is real. I can't tell you how many people come to pastors to ask them why good things happen to bad people. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Just a few pages into Holy Scripture. And if you leave that out, if you don't understand the fall of man, the curse that is on this world, you're not going to understand why things happen. We live in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. And Solomon realized that his wealth could not overcome the curse. His wisdom, his good looks, his popularity, all of those things could not overcome the curse. He says what is crooked cannot be made straight. In and of himself, under the sun, his pursuits apart from God bring no salvation. That's the point that he's making in this book. He also says it's unsatisfying. He says, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What he's saying is all these things. I had it all. Literally had it all. He had one of the most famous queens come up from Egypt. And look at all he has and looked at how his household was run and look at all the organization and all the wealth and all the worship and the temples and everything else. And it says her breath was taken away at all that Solomon had. Yet it did not satisfy him because at some point in his life, he said, you know what? I'm going to find satisfaction apart from God. And he never, ever found it. How much more insane is it when those of us who have not even a fraction of the opportunity and the wealth and the influence that Solomon have think that we can find satisfaction apart from Christ when Solomon couldn't find it. But I want to remind you that every one of us is a scientist. We are searching for meaning in our life. We're all conducting cosmic experiments and the results are binding and eternal. We're not playing a game. This isn't a warm-up. This isn't a practice. I've heard preachers say that. This is real life. This is reality. And I want to ask you some questions this morning. Where have you placed your hope? What or whom do you worship? I'm not saying what do you say you hope in. I'm saying what does your life say you hope in? I'm not asking you what church you go to to worship or what religion you name. I'm saying what is your life worship? Because Solomon realized the sad result that nothing in life apart from God under the sun could satisfy him. But then Solomon moves on to this powerful conclusion. Solomon realizes something that every one of us have to realize this morning. Moving forward all the way to the last chapter, chapter 12, verse 13. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The end of the matter. All has been heard. And I want you to remember that Solomon is the wisest man that has ever lived. Solomon spent his life searching for the answers to life's most difficult questions. Nothing is more important in life than this and his conclusion has been tested and proven he learned that through his trial and his error and through his mistakes which were payments for his discovery of the answers he's invested his entire life in these two verses to tell us the powerful conclusion and before we dig into his answer what is your answer what is your greatest aim? What is your, if you had to come up with one point or two points, this is what life is all about. What's the most important thing in your life? Where does your life derive its meaning and its value? Well, Solomon's conclusion was number one, fear God. In the Bible, God commands us to fear him. He's pleased when we fear him and he rewards those who fear him. Fear belongs to him. You cannot separate Fear from God. If you understand who He is, His holiness, His power, His greatness, His majesty, 
It brings fear into the hearts of those who are not like him. Remember I said the curse happened in Genesis chapter 3. We live in a curse and a sinful and a fallen and a broken world. And broken, fallen, sinful people have been separated from this holy God. And it should strike fear into our hearts when we understand his holiness. But as we look across all of scripture, how is the fear of God used in the Bible? It's used to mean dread, reverence, awe, respect, realization of his majesty, his power, worship, obedience. It encompasses all of those things. Fear of God, unlike what some people want to tell us, does not exclude actual terror and fear. That is a part of biblical fear of God. But it also cannot be separated from reverence and awe and worship. Here are the different types of fear of God that are listed in the Bible. The first one is a fear that is based on condemnation and judgment. This is real. This is actual. The Bible says that those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, they are under the wrath of God. They are looking forward to a certain and a sure condemnation and judgment. We deserve judgment apart from Jesus Christ and his mercy. We've got to understand that. That's part of the gospel message. If you don't understand sin and the price for sin, the wages of sin is death, then we're not truly communicating the gospel to a lost world. We've got to understand that sinners are truly in the hands of an angry God, whether you like that sermon or not. That has to be a part of the conversation. But the Bible also talks about a fear that is based on love. Have you ever feared offending someone that you greatly admire? Have you ever been in the presence of greatness? Have you ever got to meet one of your heroes? There, there's this fear, not of the person, like that they're going to harm you, but you don't want to offend them. Or the fear of hurting those that you love. Or a fear of disobedience that will lead to our own hurt. Have you ever made a decision that you're like, I know what I want to do, but my parents raised me right, and I know if I do this, there are going to be consequences. I, I know that everything that's done in the dark is going to be brought to the light. That, that's a part of fear where, where you're afraid of disobeying that leads to your own hurt. Fear of God is a result of the fall. Adam sinned, and what happened? He hid from God. He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. And then throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, Cain was afraid and fled from God. When we look at things like the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah where God's judgment is poured out, even his own people, Israel, was sent into exile and suffered incredible, incredible persecution. Even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, who truly worshipped God, they were truly a part of the church, but they made a huge mistake, and it was that they did not fear God. And they spoke lightly of the things that the Holy Spirit was actively working in, and God took their lives. So fear is a result of the fall, and we must always maintain a healthy fear of God because we are sinful. Even as children of God, we are capable of great sin. However, true Christian fear of God looks like this. Respect, awe, admiration, worship, and obedience. As a born-again believer who's been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we no longer fear God's wrath because Jesus took it for us forever. It's been removed from us. It is finished we are sealed, we're secure, we're safe in Christ, in the blood of the Lamb, in God's family. We're loved, we're accepted. But we still have a respect for God. We still stand in awe of who He is and live our lives in light of those things. So that's His first thing. This is the powerful conclusion. Fear God. If you ever move away from the fear of God, reverencing Him, worshiping Him, sharing the gospel to those that are outside of the covenant, of Jesus Christ and His blood, telling them that they are in danger of the coming wrath of God. If we ever cease to understand the fear of God, 
then we're wandering in the same way that Solomon did. Then he moves on and he says, and keep his commandments. So what are the commandments of God? In the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments that were given to the Hebrews. Those were summarized down to the Ten Commandments, which was a summary of the 613 commandments. And those were actually boiled down to two commandments that encompassed all the commandments. Matthew 22, verse 34 says, But when the Pharisees had gathered together, that had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All of scripture is fulfilled in these two commandments. He was quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. So the first four commandments of the ten are love God, and the last six are in the category of love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It encompasses every area of life, mental, physical, spiritual. He says it's our duty. We were created as image bearers, and there's a high responsibility that comes with that. So what is the Christ connection? Every single book that we're going through, we're looking for the Christ connection. Do we see a connection to Christ in the book of Ecclesiastes? We do because Jesus, the New Testament tells us, Jesus is the wisdom of God. And he taught us to read our Bibles with him in mind. He said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms which included the writings, which included Ecclesiastes. And we're told in the New Testament that these things make us wise for salvation. So for the Christian, what Jesus taught in John 15, verses 10 through 11, is an excellent summary of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So our search for eternal life, for rest, for joy, for justice, it moves us beyond the fallen world that we live in. Paul calls it creation's subjection to futility. It's, it's the effects of the curse on this world. He says in Romans 8.20, For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the movement to Christ is through the son of David, King Solomon, who it was promised that one of his descendants, another son of David, the Messiah, would come and he would set everything right in this world that had been lost in the fall. All the things in this world, apart from God, cannot bring satisfaction or happiness or fulfillment. So our eyes are taken heavenward to to God's ultimate and eternal provision for our emptiness, for our sin, for our brokenness, for our futility. And Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the answer. Don't make the mistake of listening to what I just shared with you, with Solomon's conclusion, and say, oh, the way to salvation is fearing God and keeping his commandments. No, the way to salvation is through the blood of Christ. The law teaches us Paul said it's a schoolmaster that shows us we can't keep the law apart from Jesus Christ. We can't keep God's commandments. We can't fear God in the way that we need to. We need a sacrifice. We need a substitute. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. To do what the law could not do. 
and through faith in Jesus Christ, we're set free from our bondage. And we're free in Christ to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's an important distinction. So there's our Christ connection. It's all pointing forward to Jesus. The, the life that we're all pursuing can only be found in him. We get bits and pieces. We get tastes of it in this world when we honor him and live for him. But we fully experience it. True meaning, true fulfillment, true satisfaction in eternity. When we're set free from this body of sin and death and reunited with our Savior. So let's look at the gospel as we close this morning. Jesus came to pay the price for our sins so that we would not have to experience emptiness and futility in this life. And so that we will not have to experience God's wrath in the life to come. That's the gospel. Jesus came to set us free from slavery to sin so that we can walk in freedom. Jesus himself said those who commit sin become slaves to sin. And we've all experienced that. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. It takes salvation through the blood of Christ to be set free from our sin so we can walk in freedom. But even as believers, we're still in this body of flesh. We still struggle with sin. And we're commanded to fear God, keep his commandments, focus on the right things, find our satisfaction in God alone. Jesus came to reunite us with the Father so we can experience his love and his acceptance and his divine satisfaction. He came to fill us with his spirit so that we can love God and love others and walk in obedience for his glory. So coming back to where we started, Solomon wrote this book so that others could learn an incredibly difficult lesson that he had to learn without experiencing the heartache and the emptiness that he felt when he walked away from God's plan and purpose in his life. So how did he answer and how do we answer these four questions? The question of origin, where did I come from? Well, someone who lives only under the sun, without regarding what God has to say, without regarding his word, basically under the sun is the definition of an atheist, someone who lives as if there is no God. All that exists is what's under the sun. There is no creator. I'm gonna live my life. How does an atheist answer the question of origins. We came from random chance. Life began from random interactions of chemicals and evolved through natural selection and mutating genes. Man, doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside? That's where atheists think we came from. Christians believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 27 of Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them in his image. So that's how Christians answer the question of origin. What about meaning? Why am I here? An atheist believes that their life is ultimately without meaning or purpose. For your brief existence, it is whatever you make it to be. Now that sounds good. That sounds like that sets us free from consequences, but it also sets us free from any type of meaning and any type of purpose in life. And I'm not twisting their beliefs out of context. The author of the Young Atheist Handbook said this, yes, of course I know that life is ultimately without meaning and without purpose, but the trick is to wake up every morning and not feel that way. At least they're honest. At least they admit that's their starting point. That there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no satisfaction. What about the answer to the question of morality? What determines right and wrong? The atheistic worldview says there's no standard of truth, no absolute truth, no right and wrong. They cannot look at what Hitler did and say that is evil. Because according to an evolutionary worldview, it's just the survival of the fittest, right? As a matter of fact, that's how he justified what he was doing. Ideas have consequences. Belief leads to behavior. 
What is the Christian worldview of morality? Scripture is our final authority in faith and practice. God has spoken. God has revealed himself. Truth is knowable. Good and evil exist, and God has defined it. That's how we are called to answer the question of morality. What about destiny? Where am I going when I die? For an atheist, the best option they have, if they were right, is that they cease to exist. They're forgotten. Their life has no meaning, no purpose, no connection. All they were were the series of chemical reactions. But for the Christian, we're promised eternal joy in the presence of God and eternal purpose serving Him and worshiping Him. We're not going to float around on clouds after we die and we're resurrected. We're going to live forever for the glory of God, serving Him, serving His purposes, and it hasn't even entered into our hearts and mind how unbelievably glorious and amazing that's going to be. So Christians, I want to close our time today by calling each one of us to live into the purposes that God has for us. In his book, A Holy Ambition, John Piper writes the following statement. He says, books by the hundreds have been written on the image of God or the Imago Dei as it's called. It is a huge issue. He says, I'm not going to avoid the whole controversy and I'm just gonna say something simpler and I think just as profound. Images are created to image. Why do you ever set up an image of something? To image it. If you put up a statue of Stalin, you want people to look at Stalin and think about Stalin. If you put up a statue of George Washington, you want to remind people of the founding fathers. Images are made to image something. So if God made us, unlike all the other animals and all of his other creations, God made us in his image. Whatever that means in detail, it means this clearly, that God is the reality and we are the image that are pointing others to this reality. Why did God create man in his image? To show God. Think about this. What would it mean if you created seven billion statues of yourself and put them all over the world? It would mean that you wanted people to notice you. What does it mean when God created seven billion statues of himself and put, a, put us all over the world? We bear his image to image him. He created little images not to be worshipped, but so that people would talk and act and feel in a way that reveals who God is. So that when people look at us, how we behave, how we think, how we feel, they should say something like, God must be great. God must be real. That is why we exist. God did not create you as an end in yourself. Everybody can take a collective sigh of relief right there. The universe is not about you. God did not create you as an end in yourself. He is the end and we are the means. We point everybody and everything to this God that is greater than ourselves. He is the reality. And the reason that's such good news is because the best way to show that God is infinitely valuable is to find our meaning and our purpose and our satisfaction in Him alone and to use all these other things to point others to Him. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So as image bearers who are called to reflect God, we need to remember that we should live in a way and think in a way and feel in a way and speak in a way that calls attention to the brightness of God's glory. That is why we exist. And those who do not know Jesus, they are separated from the very reason they were created. And that's why they feel emptiness. And that's why they're lonely. And that's why no matter what they have and how many friends they have and how many people know their name or how gifted they are, 
there is no fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in that for them. So wisdom is what Solomon's trying to give us this morning. Wisdom about life. And wisdom is a teacher that can be compared to a sign at the top of the cliff that is warning us not to get too close to the edge of the cliff because we could be injured. Experience is another type of teacher. Experience is a paramedic that is at the bottom of the cliff that picks up our broken body and puts it on a stretcher and takes us to the hospital where we can hopefully mend and heal. Wisdom and experience are both powerful teachers. But wisdom tries to protect us. And it's a gentle teacher who can help us avoid the traps set by the enemy. And that's the same way that Jesus taught. He taught us to avoid the tricks of the devil. Paul warns us of the enemy's schemes. Unfortunately, many of us are like Solomon, and we have to learn from our own experience. Many times we dash our own lives on the rocks, and our children's lives, and our community's lives, because we forget about the voice of wisdom and the voice of truth. And Jesus this morning, if we have a point to this entire sermon, Jesus is our wisdom. And through his salvation, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we can build our lives on God's eternal truth. I'm going to ask the band to come forward and we're going to close in a song. I just want to take a moment to pause and respond to what has been shared this morning. Through this Old Testament book, this divine book, this God-breathed book, we have heard the truth of who God is, who we are, and what God expects, expects of us, and what He's calling us to do, and how we're called to live our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You, and God, we thank You so much this morning for the truth of Your Word that is powerful, and that calls us to response. And Lord, I pray that this morning You would meet us here in this place, that we would humble our hearts, and acknowledge the truth that there is no meaning and joy and peace and satisfaction apart from you. But in you, we have everything we need. So Holy Spirit, please draw us to yourself this morning. And may the gospel truly reach us where we are. If anyone is here this morning that does not know you, please save them. Draw them to yourself. Forgive their sins. Show them that you are the only way. That you're the truth and you're the life. That no one can come to the Father except through you. And for those of us who are struggling in our own frailty and weakness, God, please call us back into a true relationship with you where we find our satisfaction in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.